Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Beyond Texas and Part 3 of The Adventures of Frank Abagnale, Con Man Extraordinaire. I'm W.F. Strong, and I'll skip the normal formalities today because many of you wrote to me and said you couldn't wait to hear how Frank solved the riddle he had posed for himself. So I'll return straight away to talk about his creative and audacious solution. You will recall that Frank felt vulnerable as a lone pilot. He said an entourage is expected of some people. The president, Queen Elizabeth, rock stars have entourages. Most celebrities do, and certainly airline pilots. He said that a solitary pilot was always a subject of scrutiny, and scrutiny invites curiosity, which leads to investigations. Bad news all around. A pilot trailing a squad of lovely stewardesses would be above suspicion, he said. If he just had a bevy of beautiful stewardesses with him, he could scatter his counterfeit checks like confetti. So he needed his own flight crew. He wondered if he should use perhaps a different airline now, but thought no. He had a lot of experience with Pan Am. He had quite a resume. He'd be loyal to them. He'd let them furnish his flight crew. What he would do is he would hire his own stewardesses and have them work for him, but they would think that they were working for Pan Am. He'd get them uniforms, and they'd fly on Pan Am jets, and they would believe that they were gainfully and legally employed by Pan Am Airlines, but they'd be thoroughly conned themselves, completely blind to the caper that they were a part of. And here's how he did it. He walked into Pan Am headquarters in New York and got a bunch of recruitment brochures. He believed always that it was dumb, really dumb, to go sneaking around at night trying to get into offices to get what you want. What you do is you walk in in broad daylight and act like you belong there. You walk in in uniform and ask for things, ask for help. So he asked where the brochures were, and a helpful clerk pointed him to the storeroom and said, Help yourself, flyboy. So he loaded up on brochures and job application forms and anything else he thought he might need. Then he sent a letter using Pan Am Stationery to the University of Arizona, my old alma mater, as a matter of fact. And he informed them that a representative of Pan Am would be there in a couple of weeks to interview applicants for the position of stewardesses with Pan American Airlines. He asked that the brochures be distributed to interested young ladies who were juniors and seniors and to have them sign up for interview times over three days, and he specified the dates he would be there. Well, when he arrived at the University of Arizona, he had plenty of applicants. He interviewed about 40 women and selected eight. He met with those eight, and he congratulated them on almost being hired, not quite yet. He gave them applications and said that they should be filled out and sent to the address that he would give them, a P.O. box that he had taken out in the post office in the Pan Am building in New York. So the address was a near match to the corporate address. He told them that someone from Pan Am would review their applications, not him, and they would be in touch with them as soon as they could and let them know about their official selection as a summer intern with the airlines. But he assured them that his recommendation would carry a lot of weight. 
He selected only juniors and told them that they would work only for the summer in Europe and would return to school where Pan Am would help them pay for their senior year of college. And then they would be virtually guaranteed a job full-time as stewardesses with the airline, providing that they did well over the summer. They were going to be going to Europe, he told them, to develop travel brochures for the company. They would be used as models in front of the Eiffel Tower, Notre Dame, Big Ben, the Acropolis. And for those shoots, they would wear their uniforms. But when they would fly, they would be in their street clothes, and they would make no mention of their job to any of the Pan Am employees, stewardesses, flight crew, etc., because they might get jealous of their cush assignment and raise a stink. First rule of PR, keep your mouth shut. So they would be well-paid and have a lot of fun, but just had to show that they were Pan Am professional material by keeping the secret secret. So they were pumped up and excited, and he was too, though he had much work to do to get their uniforms made, compliments of Pan Am, and other arrangements for Europe. He did instruct them to get their passports. That was their responsibility. But it was many months before they'd leave, so he had time to run some other cons before they took off for Europe. I won't go into those minor cons so much. I say read the book and learn all about the finer details of his cons, which, like any good performance, are the things that make it authentic and particularly fascinating. I don't know why we're so interested in cons. Some of our greatest films have been about great cons, The Sting, Ocean's Eleven. These two in particular concerned running cons on bad guys who deserved to be conned. That helps. I think on the whole it is like watching a magician pull off complex illusions. We appreciate the art form, as long as we are not the mark. Many con men and women, Abignell included, had standards. They would never con the little guy. Abignell never took money from a store clerk who might be held personally liable for losing money. He only went after corporations and banks, big companies. That was his rationalization anyway. Other con men would say, I never conned an honest man. By this, they meant that the mark was often a dishonest person by nature who was willing to do dishonest things to cheat to get ahead. Often a con involved letting a mark overhear a great opportunity, maybe a race that's to be fixed. The mark would then politely ask if he could get in on it. And the conman would say, no, 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 it's too risky. This is only for rich people who can afford to take a loss if necessary. Then the mark would beg to get in. He said, well, I'm not exactly poor. I've got a lot of money. They'd say, well, it's illegal, too. I'm okay with a little illegality, cutting the corner, shades of gray. I'm okay with that. And that's how the hook was set. Let the mark beg to get in. Abagnale didn't run those kinds of cons, but he did certainly want to put his marks at ease. He did this with his persona and his costumes. Two side stories. When he first started cashing the Pan Am checks, the checks didn't look too good. He would become a master forger later. In the beginning, he used an IBM Selectric typewriter, high-tech for those days, with its four balls of different fonts to give him the look of a professionally printed check. He changed fonts for different parts of the check. He went to model airplane stores and would buy Pan Am models and use the decals 
of those models on the check. But as he didn't feel that the result was as impressive as he would like, he said, well, when you have a weak product, you need to wrap it in a good presentation. A cheap dress will look a lot better wrapped in a mink. So he put the check in a genuine Pan Am expense voucher form, which he filled out with his electric typewriter. It looked good. Then he put it in a Pan Am envelope and mailed it to himself. He'd take that envelope already opened, with check inside wrapped in the expense voucher, and he'd give it to the bank clerk so they could open it and pull out the check themselves. Combine this with his fine pilot's uniform and nonchalant demeanor, could you cash this for me, in front of an 18-year-old girl who was starstruck by the handsome young man, and the check sailed right into the drawer, and the cash came right out into his hand. He said it was important always to be well-groomed and confident, and always courteous and sincere, sincere as a politician seeking re-election. The other story to share is that he had often noticed how the little airport stores and bars would at the end of the evening deposit their cash and checks in the bank deposit drawer located in a wall at the concourse exit. He thought that was an interesting ritual. So he got himself a security guard uniform and a bank roller bag, and he parked it right under that deposit drawer. Over the drawer, he posted a professionally made sign that said something like, out of order, please deposit in the guard's bank bag. How is a slot in the wall out of order in the first place? But people don't think of that because there's a uniform involved. People like lemmings just dump their day's deposits in the bag. And at the end of the evening, he put the bag on a dolly and he attempted to wheel it out to his waiting bank station wagon. He had put those old magnetic signs on the side of the station wagon that said First National Bank. He couldn't get his haul through the airport exit door, too heavy to pull it over the raised metal molding. Two policemen actually helped him load it into the car. Trust accrued to him everywhere, the power of the uniform at work. He took the bag to his hotel, and he had 60000 in cash. But he did, as he left town, anonymously tip off the police as to where they could find the checks and credit card receipts so, so those could be returned to the businesses. He wasn't heartless, after all, and it was important to him that he could believe that about himself. Time to go to Europe. He picked up the girls at the L.A. airport. He even got a Pan Am van from the motor pool to pick them up. Pilots do have privileges. He gave them their uniforms and the fake but quite real Pan Am employee badges, and they were thrilled. Off they went to Europe. Every two weeks he'd give them paychecks that he faked, and then he'd tell them that he would get them cashed because Pan Am didn't like their European checks cashed in America. So they would endorse them to him, and he'd cash them at the fancy hotels they stayed in. Then he'd give the girls cash, which they could send home via money order, or spend it on their lavish lifestyles in Europe. Everyone was happy, except the hotels, but, but they wouldn't be unhappy for a week or so. But also, interestingly, Abagnale's forgeries were so good that he believed Pan Am was actually paying the checks in some cases. Read the book to learn how he was able to make such beautifully perfect forgeries. So, 
They spent all summer running around Europe, driving often in a van to minimize the chances of his girls running into real Pan Am employees and suffering from loose lips. While they were out doing shoots at exotic locales, he was cashing expense vouchers and checks in their real names and in his fake one. He netted something like half a million dollars over the summer and actually paid the girls, as he promised, and paid their expenses, too. He said goodbye to them in August and sent them home. The FBI were soon there to talk to them. Of course, they were all duped and perfectly innocent, so no charges were filed against them. Now, lots of international agencies were looking for Frank. They found him in France. He gave them a new fake ID and a different identity, but they weren't having it. He was taken to court and rather quickly judged guilty and thrown in prison. And I mean prison. He was jailed in a medieval, solitary confinement in a dungeon, in the dark, with no bed, no bathroom, only a bucket that was emptied only rarely. He had to live in his own filth. Bread and water was his only diet. He was there for a year in that darkness, never got to go outside, and he lost an enormous amount of weight. He had double pneumonia when he was released. But freedom did not await him. Eight other European countries wanted him, including such, including such hospitable penal systems as those offered by Italy and Turkey. Can you say Midnight Express? But he had one bit of luck. Sweden got him next. It was nirvana compared to the hellhole France had put him in. He first got hospitalized and cured of his pneumonia. Then he was given good food and his health was resurrected. The jail he was put in there for six months, that was his sentence, six months, was a condo complex of apartments with a fence around it. He lived with other inmates in nice apartments with TV, and they could cook their own food and go for walks. It was heaven. He knew that Italy was next on his list, and he knew that given the slate of European countries who wanted him, that he'd be imprisoned there perhaps for the rest of his life, and if not, he'd die of dysentery or illness. So he begged the Swedish judge to let him stay in Sweden, but the judge said his hands were tied by international law. He had to send him on. Italy was coming for him. The night before Italy was to get him, the Swedish judge had him brought into his quarters, and he said to him, I've done you a favor, a big favor. I called the U.S. Embassy, and I had your passport revoked. You are now illegally in Sweden, and I'm having you deported to America. You will have to do your time there, but at least American law bars you from being deported to other countries. You're not even 21 yet. You can turn your life around. You're bright and clever. Use your gifts for good. So they put him on a plane, one-way, non-stop flight to New York. When the plane arrived at the terminal, he was not on it. He had escaped somewhere in between. I remember reading this story in the newspaper when I was in high school. It was front-page news in many papers. Felon escapes from airplane. Here's how he did it. He knew airplanes, of course, having worked for Pan Am for so long. Shortly before they landed, he went into the bathroom and he disassembled the toilet and moved it to the side, and that left a hole that went out onto the tarmac. So when the plane stopped at the end of the runway to turn, he dropped out through that hole onto the tarmac and ran across the airport complex and jumped a fence, and he was gone. 
but not for long. They caught him three days later, and he went to prison. He went to prison for a good long while, and when he got out of prison, he couldn't find a job. He couldn't find a job because he was a felon, and he was a forger, and he was an embezzler. And uh, so you can imagine that there was a trust problem there. So one day he walked into a bank, and he went to the president of the bank, and he said, give me your employees for 30 minutes after work today, and if I tell them something worth knowing, you pay me $500, and if what I tell them is not worth anything, then you pay me nothing. So the president did it. He brought the employees together, and he told them how to spot forgeries and how to avoid being conned by people like him. It was the ultimate con. He went straight. And this was the beginning of his consulting business that he has been in for many, many years, providing security advice for large corporations, protecting them from people like him. I started this by telling you that you can learn a lot from a con man, and this is what I think you learn. When you take the things Frank Abagnale did, such as wearing the right uniform and speaking the right language, you learn You learn that in the real world, when you are authentic and when you are legitimate, you need to pay attention to these things because they're powerful. And you combine it with real legitimacy, and you've got super legitimacy. Well, that wraps up our look at Frank Abagnale and his career as one of the finest con men of the last century. Next week... We go on to, I'm not quite sure who, I think I'll surprise you, probably surprise myself. I'm W.F. Strong, I'm your storyteller and your host. Remember that there's no more powerful force in the world than good stories well told. You can write to me anytime at W.F. Strong Podcast, W.F. Strong Podcast at gmail.com. <laughs>